If you've turned on Christian television at any point in the last 20 years, you've seen them. Men and women with perfectly styled hair and obnoxiously white teeth, who wear designer clothes and the most expensive accessories. They wander a stage commanding the, present, the attention of thousands live and millions more over television. And they tell you how you too can have your best life now, or how every day can be a Friday, or how you can change your life just by changing the words that you speak. We're talking about men like Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, T.D. Jakes, and Stephen Furtick, or women like Joyce Meyer, Gloria Copeland, Paula White, Juanita Bynum, and Beth Moore. They have ministries that span the globe, and on their weekly programs, they offer to share their deepest insights into scripture for a price. Some of them thunder the message from the stage, and others are more soft-spoken, but regardless of who they are and how they do it, the message is always the same. If you believe, if you have enough faith, then you too can have wealth beyond imagination, health that conquers sickness and disease, and happiness that is available in the darkest of circumstances. This message is very appealing. I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy? Who doesn't want to know that they can take care of all of their family's needs? Who wouldn't love to wake up every day overflowing with happiness despite what they're going through? To add to this message's appeal is the faith preachers themselves. They seem to be the very testament of the truth of their message. They live in million-dollar mansions. They fly in private jets all around the world. And they take every opportunity to tell you and I all of the material things that God has blessed them with. But is this what the Bible really teaches? Does the Bible say that if you and I believe in the gospel that we'll have health, wealth, and happiness? This modern message is called many different things. Some people call it the prosperity gospel. Others call it name it and claim it or blab it and grab it but the proponents of this message call it the word of faith. It was at one time reserved for just small fringe groups in the charismatic movement, but now it's the most common expression of Christianity in the media today. And it's not just for big cities like Dallas or LA or New York. It's now in mainline denominations and it's even in small towns like ours. The smaller towns may not preach everything outright, but they still hold to those same ideologies. Now, we don't have time tonight to go through all of the different things that the Word of Faith teachers teach, so we're just going to focus on some of the basic stuff. If you're interested in seeing something more in-depth, I would point you to Justin Peters' talk, Clouds Without Water. He spends a very long period of time and goes very in-depth into a lot of the different doctrines that we're going to talk about. So to start with the word of faith, it's important to understand how they see themselves. They believe that God, when he made Adam, made a direct copy of himself. Adam was not a creation made by God's hands and made in his image. He was an exact duplicate of God from the very beginning. He had the same authority and the same power that, Adam, or that God had. And when Adam sinned, he lost that godhood, he lost that authority and that power, 
now that there was no longer a God in the world, Satan took over and became the legal God of this world, locking God out of his creation so that God can no longer work here on earth. But when man gets saved, the faith teachers teach that they regain their godhood and their authority and they can once again speak on behalf of God or even on behalf of themselves. The word of faith phrase comes from the fact that these teachers believe that your words are containers for your faith. When you and I speak, we speak with conviction and boldness and that those words hold the faith or that conviction and when they go out from us, they draw whatever we speak back to us. This ties in with what they teach about positive confession. If you notice, the faith teachers always say something positive. They'll never say anything negative about themselves or their situation. You'll never hear them say things like, well, I'm not really that smart because in their eyes, you're actually speaking yourself dumber. They'll never say, I'm not really feeling well or I'm feeling sick because they believe that that would be speaking sickness into their lives. And they'll never say that they're poor or that they don't have enough money because that would be speaking poverty. When they talk about faith, the word faith teachers say that faith is a force. We talk about it as being a substance. They say it's a force. It's almost like Star Wars. They use this force to convince God or even command God to do the things that they want to do and to bring about their desires. Because faith is a force that we use in conjunction with our words to get God to give us what we want, it's important to know what God promises in his word for us. If you pray something like, Lord, if it be your will, they would balk at you and even mock you and ridicule you because you don't have enough faith. Thankfully, the Word of Faith preachers are ready with a long list of scriptures detailing the various promises that they say God offers to you and I as believers. And so what we'll do is we're going to look at some of those basic promises in each of the categories and see what they say, and then we'll go back and take a look at them in a different way. In regards to health, Benny Hinn has said that healing and salvation shouldn't be separated. It's as easy for you to be healed as it is for you to be saved. That begs the question, if you're not healed, are you really saved? They'll point to passages like 1 Peter 2:24, which says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, four and five, which says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. The faith teachers would tell you that when Jesus was scourged by the Romans, those stripes were for our physical healing. And they would even point out that because 1 Peter 2 uses the word were, that it's already done. Your healing is already taken care of. Jesus did his part when he was whipped. All you have to do is reach out in faith and claim it for yourself. 
they would also point to passage like Matthew 9, verses 20 through 22, which says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. They would say that this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years, that she came out to see Jesus and believed that if she just touched his robe, that she would be healed. She touches his robe, she's instantly healed. Jesus feels the power of virtue go out of him and asks who touched him. The woman timidly comes forth and admits that she was the one. He turns around and he says to her, your faith has made you well. The faith teachers would tell you that if you have the same faith as this woman, then you too can be healed. But since you can't touch the hem of Jesus' garment, to show your faith, you should sow a seed into their ministry. Some price, I've heard things from $100 to $500 to $54.17. But if you sow this financial seed into their ministry, it's a sign of your faith that God is going to provide your healing. You must believe that you'll be healed, even when things look like you're not being healed, even if you haven't received it yet. Your nose could be running, your eyes could be watering, you could have a pounding headache and be wrapped in, clo in blankets because you've got chills. But you'll never hear someone who follows this movement say that they're sick because the moment they speak something negative, it destroys their healing and their possibility for being healed. As far as wealth goes, you'll hear them often quote 3 John 2, which says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. They would point to this not only as John's wish for us, but as God's wish. It's God's desire that his children would prosper and be in health. And since this is his desire and he's God, once again, your wealth is already completed. It's already ready for you. All you have to do is exercise your faith to speak faith-filled words and believe with conviction that God's going to provide for you, and it's yours. Another passage they'll commonly quote is Jeremiah 29.11, which says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. They'll say, God has plans for you. He's got your entire life planned out. And it's a future with a hope that all you have to do is understand and believe in faith that God's plans are for your best. It's always for your best. And you'll see those things come to pass. The last scripture we'll look at for wealth is John 10.10, 10, where Jesus says the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief here is Satan, the enemy of our souls. He's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God's given us. We see this example in Job 1, where Satan destroys everything that Job has. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says that Satan is roaming the world 
seeking to devour whoever he can. But in contrast, they would say, Jesus came to give us life, and that life is to be an abundant one, full of prosperity and health and happiness. As a believer in Christ, they would say that you shouldn't ever know lack in any of those areas because these words are directly from Christ himself. And with happiness, I think it's best to let the faith preachers speak for themselves. On Kenneth Copeland's website, he has an article called Finding the Real Keys to Happiness. He says when talking about, or to have real happiness, you must first recognize that you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And then there's a cascade of logic. Since Jesus is the heir of all things, he owns all the resources in heaven and on earth. As joint heir, you too own all of those resources. They're already ready for you. All you have to do is ask. But again, you must ask in boldness. You must ask with faith. He says if you're having trouble getting those resources, you're likely living in two worlds. You're stuck in the world's thinking instead of living to the principles found in Scripture. And so his solution is that you need to set your mind on things above and start acting like a citizen of heaven. Use your faith to draw those resources to you. He says your loved ones in heaven aren't worried about having their needs supplied because they're already done. They have everything they need and you should be living that way here on earth. When you do this, he says, you'll experience true God-given happiness. But there are a number of problems with the word faith message. And so as we go back and look at these scriptures again, we need to remember that there are three important rules whenever we look at scripture. Those three rules are context, context, and context. So as we look at these scriptures, we're going to look at the context and see if they really say what the word faith preachers say they do. Before we do that, it's also important that you know that the word faith message is based on the ideas of uh, metaphysical cults and New Age philosophies like New Thought and Christian Science. They exalt man to God's level and they bring God down to man's level. Many of them even say that they receive direct revelation from God through visions or him actually speaking to them. As we saw before, the word of faith teachers say that belief is a force that you use. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says that faith is trusting in Christ, that he is who he says he is. You see, faith needs an object. In the word of faith movement, the object of faith is faith. You're to have faith in your faith, and that's what brings about the results that you want. In biblical Christianity, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. So we saw when they talk about health that they use 1 Peter 2.24 and Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. They say that the stripes that Christ took are for our healing. But if we go through Isaiah 53, we see that he says that Christ was pierced through for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. Those two words are synonyms for our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
the word of faith preachers have to ignore this context because it doesn't fit with their ideology. So rather than correct themselves and hold to true biblical theology, they corrupt it and they twist it to suit their own needs. What Peter and Isaiah are talking about here is the fact that Jesus' death on the cross results in our being cleansed of our sins and the pains and the griefs and the sorrows that come with them. We talked about Matthew 9 with the woman in the issue of blood. If you look at Mark 5 and Luke 8, which are parallel passages, you find out more information about the whole situation. You'll find out that this woman had spent all of her money on doctors and quacks to try and get better, and instead she only got worse. The point of this passage is not that Jesus will heal us if we have enough faith. The point of the passage is that this is what faith looks like when someone comes to Christ. This woman had suffered long, 12 years. She had spent everything she had and given up everything to the world system to try and get healing and it never happened. All of those men did was lie to her and take her money. Her only hope was Christ. And so she pushes through a crowd full of people. She reaches out and touches his garment and she's immediately healed. The word used here for made well is the word sozo, which is often used in the New Testament for salvation. The point is, this woman was not only healed physically, she was healed spiritually. She was born again. And when Christ turns around, he calls her daughter which is not something he called everybody. Notice that she had spent all of her money on people that promised help but couldn't do anything for her. This is the exact representation of the word of faith preachers today. They'll take money from anyone as much as they can, but they offer nothing in return. If they really could heal people, why aren't they walking floor to floor on every hospital they can reach and just healing people and emptying the floors? But they don't because they know that they can't do it. If you look at a Benny Hinn crusade, you'll notice that everybody up front looks relatively normal. And that's because they kick everybody that they know they can't heal, which was really everybody, but they kick everybody that would cause issues all the way to the back, out of the view of the camera where you can't see them. And it just so happens that the crusade ends before those people can make it up in order for Benny Hinn to heal them. It's because it's all a charade, and they know it. When they talk about wealth, we saw that they point out 3 John 2, which says, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. 3 John is a letter from John to his best friend Gaius. And this is the second verse of that letter. You and I may not handwrite letters anymore, but we write a lot of emails. And when you write an email, what's the first thing you say? Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. I hope this finds you well. That's exactly what John is doing here. This is not a prescription for health or wealth or prosperity. This is John being a good friend and being concerned about his brother in Christ and how he's doing. We saw Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a very misquoted verse. 
For most people, it's a life verse. But let's look at the context. In verse one, it says, now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If we go down to verse 10, the one before the the quote, we'll see that it says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Remember, Jeremiah was writing from Jerusalem to Babylon. God was promising here, well, if you're an Israelite in captivity in Babylon, this verse applies to you, otherwise it doesn't. But what God is doing here is comforting the Israelites even as he's punishing them. The Israelites were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years because they failed to obey God's command to leave their land fallow every seventh year. And they did that for 490 years. So God sent them into captivity for 70 years. But even then, he keeps his promises because he's faithful even when we're not. And so he promises to the Israelites in captivity that when their punishment is over, he'll bring them back to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I have to ask a question. How come nobody ever quotes verses 17 and 18 as their life verse? They say, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. And I will make them a terror to all kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among the nations where I have driven them. How come nobody takes those as their life verses? See, this is the importance of context. Just like those days, there are many now who would claim to be the voice of God. They would call themselves apostles or prophets and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And just like in those days, you and I need to ignore those voices and pay attention to the truth of Scripture alone. We looked at John 10.10. The word of faith preachers say that this is God's abundance for us now. But this is not talking about material things. If we look at verse 9, again, just one verse above the verse that we're talking about. Jesus tells his listeners that anyone who enters through the door, which Jesus identifies as himself, will be saved. He then says that the thief seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but that he's come to give us abundant life. He's right. Satan does seek to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God has given us. And the best way for him to do that is to turn us away from Christ and cause us to end up in hell for all eternity. This is about eternal life. Those who come to Christ in faith will be saved, and they'll know the abundance that comes from having eternal life. This is not about a material blessing. It's about a spiritual one. And as far as Kenneth Copeland wrote about happiness, he said that we're heirs to God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And in the article, he actually quotes Hebrews 1, 2 and Romans 8, 17. 
In Hebrews, it says that Jesus was appointed by God as the heir of all things, that he also created all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. In Romans 8, 17, it says that we're adopted children by God, that we're joint heirs. But we have to understand that being joint heirs with Christ does not make us equals. We're heirs in, with Christ if we join in his suffering. None of this has anything to do with happiness. You and I are not Jesus. I know that's a shocker, right? We're not like him. We don't have his power. We don't have his righteousness. We don't have his holiness in and of ourselves. We're adopted not because we're special, not because we're wonderful. We're adopted because God is gracious and merciful. There are more problems that we could go into with the word of faith message. It makes God powerless to act in his own creation. It puts the burden on the hearer for not having enough faith. If you don't receive the blessings that these teachers claim you should have, it's not on God because God's God and he does everything. He's, he's already done it for you. The only other person whose fault it could be is you and you don't have enough faith. It preys on people's desires to be healthy, wealthy, and happy and unfortunately, it impacts most those who are poorest and sickest. It's disgusting to hear about people who are on a fixed income sending in 500 or $1,000 a month to these faith preachers just to get their healing or their prosperity, knowing that they're giving up food or not being able to pay their bills just because they believe what these false teachers say. They give their life savings as a seed of faith just to buy God's blessing. In his song, False Teachers, Shai Lin actually points out two very succinct descriptions of the word of faith message. He says the pastors speak bogus statements that are financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. He goes on to say, you want to know what all false teachers have in common? It's called selfism, the fastest growing religion. They just dress it up and call it Christian. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. Peter says this in his second letter. In 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words." Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We've seen now that this message, this word of faith message, this health and wealth and prosperity message is a false message. So what's the real message? 
the real message starts with the fact that God is not forced into doing anything because of our faith. Psalm 115.3 says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in the earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Now God does give good things to us. His provision even extends to those who are lost. He gives them food, he gives them breath, he even gives them life, and they turn around and use all of those things to blaspheme his name. But for those who are born again, for those who he calls children, he gives so much more. He gives us hope, he gives us faith and repentance, he gives us perseverance, he gives us peace with him, He gives us eternal life. He gives us himself and his word to enjoy. He shows mercy to us. He is patient with us. He's loving and he's forgiving. And he will promises that he'll be with us and he'll never leave us or forsake us. As great and precious as these promises are, they're not the only promises for Christians in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13 says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 7, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians are promised persecution. We're promised tribulation and trial. But we're promised that God is with us and that those things are brought about for our maturation in Christ and for God's glory. This is far different from the word of faith message. 
Now, all of these promises, again, are important, but there are two that I'm going to focus on as we close. The first is some, well, both of them I ask that you hear clearly, and if you leave with nothing else, then leave with these. Each one of us will stand before God when we die and will give an account of everything we say, everything we do, and everything we think. The bad news is that our account will be filled with multitudes of sins against the holy God. Now, when we compare ourselves to others, we may not be so bad. I'm sure you're all better than I am. But the problem is, I'm not the standard. God is. And that standard is found most clearly in his Ten Commandments. So how do you know how bad you are? Well, let's find out. Have you ever lied? Then you're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Doesn't matter how small it was. Doesn't matter how long ago it was. Doesn't matter if you even gave it back. If you've taken anything that doesn't belong to you, the Bible calls you a thief. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? That's called blasphemy. Ever looked at someone with lust? That's the same as adultery according to Christ. That's four of the Ten Commandments. And all of us are guilty. If we continue looking, we'll see that idolatry and disobedience to parents and coveting other people's things and hating someone are also sins. And because God is holy and just, he must punish sin wherever he finds it. And because he's a just and righteous judge, he's promised to give us the punishment that we deserve for sinning against him. Without a payment for our sins, we'll spend eternity in hell as just and righteous punishment for what we've done against God. To make matters worse, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no way for us to earn heaven. There's no purgatory where we just burn it off. Once it's done, it's done. None are good. None are righteous. None seek after God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, God says that fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Revelation 21, 8, he says, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and liars will have their part in the lake of fire. This is a promise from God to all of those who die in their sins. Thankfully and graciously, it's not the only promise that God gives. The good news is that God has another promise. While there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, God has done something for us. He sent his son, Jesus, to live among us in perfect obedience to his law. Jesus came not to just hang out with us. He came for a specific purpose. He came that he might be the sacrifice for all those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. When he was here, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was flayed, and he was nailed to a wooden cross between two criminals. 
on the cross, he experienced excruciating pain as he hung there. But none of it was as terrible as bearing God's wrath for your sin and mine. When God's justice had been satisfied, Christ gave up his life of his own accord. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later he rose again to defeat death, hell, and the grave. The promise is that God's mercy and grace are available to any sinner. But there are two things that you must do. You must repent of your sins. That means turn from those things that you know are wrong. Agree with God that your sins are as dark and wicked as he says they are. And when you turn from those things, turn from them for good and run to Christ to be saved. The second thing you must do is to trust Christ with all that you are, not trusting in your own goodness. It's like jumping out of a plane at 10,000 feet. No matter how hard you flap your arms, you're not going to save yourself. The same way, you have to trust Jesus like you would trust that parachute because that's the only thing that's going to save you. It's the same with Christ. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You have to put all of your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you. If you do this, then God promises that you'll be born again, that you'll be a new creation, you'll be an adopted son or daughter of, Christ, or of God, and he'll cleanse you of your sin. You'll hate your sin and all those things that you used to love, and you'll live because you love God and you're called according to his purpose. You'll be spared God's wrath, and when you die, you'll know without a shadow of a doubt that you'll enter heaven, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. If you're here, either live or watching online, and you don't know Christ, that first promise that we talked about is for you. Without a payment for your sins, if you die and you stand before God, you'll, you'll be in hell for all eternity. So hear me as I plead with you. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen or when you'll die and stand before God. Repent and trust Christ while there's still time. God promises eternal life for those who are born again. He promises to be with us as we walk through this sin-marred world. No matter the trial or tribulation you face, it will one day be over and all your pains and all your griefs will be gone. All your tears will be wiped away and you'll spend eternity praising the God who graciously saved you. This is far more valuable than a lifetime of money, health, and happiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,